It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. You're listening to Teal for Change on the Sharks Audio Network with your hosts, Mo Fafana and Whitney Halleck. Welcome back to the Teal for Change podcast. This is what, episode four? Four, five? Four, five, six, one of those. Super excited. Like, wow, we're back. We're back. Episode four. Super, super excited for this one. Yeah, our last episode, we had Curtis Gabriel, one of our Sharks players, and Brock McGillis. Yeah, so great. That was episode two and three. Yes. And we we do keep saying that each episode gets better and better. And we we also had our colleague Chi on, and and he was a a crowd favorite. I heard a lot of of good things about him. And also, um, since the recording of that episode, Curtis um, recently got nominated for the King Clancy Memorial Trophy Award. Yeah, huge honor based on his uh, leadership on and off the ice. So cool that that we had an NHL league nominee for an award on our podcast. Mo, what did what were some of the takeaways uh, from our interview with, with with Curtis and Gabriel? Looking back, what was what was some of your favorite moments? Some of my favorite moments with, with the interview that we had with Curtis and Brock was just you know how real they were. You know, they shared, you know, their experiences. I love hearing about, you know, what inspired Brock to be able to, you know, live fully with it. He shared the passing of, you know, one of his close friends, um, you know, yeah. that made him, you know, be more open and continue that legacy. And, you know, just Curtis, the way he's been enjoying his time being in the NHL and um, supporting you know, um, the LGBTQ com- community and continue to put himself out there and educate himself and not, you know, being afraid to make mistakes. I think that's so important because many people want to be a part of this conversation, but afraid to make mistakes. Yep. And one of the things that they shared was it's okay to make mistakes because you, you learn and no one is an expert in these, you know, discussions or conversations and things of that nature, but do your right. best, you know, learn along your mistakes. So, yeah, I think I would agree. I think that was my favorite part is is I love meeting people and getting to know people who are just different. And I wish more people could be like that. Of what is it? What is that inside you that says, I'm going to stand up for what's right? I'm going to stand up for what matters, even if people think I'm crazy or even if, you know, everyone else might be afraid. But it's just so interesting that anytime, you know, that you're on the right side of history, it always proves itself out. So speak up and be strong and don't worry that maybe you make some mistakes here and there, but it always pays off and, you know, be on the right side of history. Curtis, I, I think Curtis and, and Brock both spoke on this, but but Curtis made a really, really good point of you're taking away the greatest part of sport if you tell an athlete to stick to their sport and don't talk about the issues that matter and don't talk about real life. And our guest Chi also, our colleague Chi also said this as well, is like, that's why we love sport so much is the human aspect. Yeah, the the human aspect definitely is something that they both 
you know, Chi as well as Brock and Curtis hit on that, you know, that's a big part of sports. So it's, it's important that we, um, you know, not try not to take that away and making athletes like robots and not um, having a say so or, you know, thoughts in this conversation. So Mo, I am, I am so excited for our next guest. And I know we keep saying this for every guest. And I know that we have had some excellent guests so far, starting with um, the amazing Heather Hooper, our colleague on our very first uh, podcast. And uh, we've been talking about Curtis and Brock. We've had Chi. And I know we're going to keep saying this, but Kim Davis, the NHL's Executive Vice President of Social Impact, Growth Initiatives, and Legislative Affairs. What an honor to have her come on our podcast. Man, I'm so geeked for this episode. I got to meet Kim, I think two years ago at our Woman of Teal event um, at the SAP Center. And I was just in awe of her seeing a woman like her, a woman of color, um, you know, leading in the NHL. Um, she has an aura about she her. She does. She does. It's incredible. <laughs> I remember after the event going up to her and introducing myself. Um, as well as the other fabulous um, guests that we had. And since then, you know, I've been in contact with her. I told her in, in past conversations, just happy to have her in the league. And also, you know, Sly Flex, she's also, you know, a, a mentor of mine. So I'm super excited that you guys will be able to hear the conversation um, that we had with Kim Davis coming up. Mo, we have another fantastic guest. Yes, super, super excited. This week, we have my mentor, Kim Davis. Kim is the Executive Vice President of Social Impact, Growth, and Legislative Affairs for the NHL. Welcome to the Tip of Change podcast, Kim. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. It's an honor. Thank you so much. I've talked to you a few times, and I've watched you on, on social media and you're basically everywhere in the NHL, which is great. And I've been watching, you know, recent interviews and things that you did. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, your background. I think a lot of people, when we talk in the NHL, they hear Kim Davis and, you know, Kim Davis work for the NHL and all the stuff that you do. But I feel like we want our audience to know a little bit about, you know, your background. And um, in the recent TED talk that you did, um, which I watched, thought it was wonderful. You mentioned that you were from the south side of Chicago. Um, and I wanted you to you know, talk a little bit about that and how did that shape the person you've become today? Sure. Well, I mean, for those who know Chicago, they will know that the south side of Chicago has particular meaning, particularly for uh, for black people. I grew up at a time and during an era when uh, neighborhoods were very segregated in the 60s and, and early 70s. When I came of age, it was quite a supportive neighborhood, socioeconomically diverse, doctors living next to postmen and, and the like. And uh, it was a time when families and neighbors stood together and stuck together. And so that really shaped my my experience uh, and, my, and my sense of, of belonging in a community. When I was 13, my mother's job moved to California and I was taken out of that environment and moved into a, a very racially diverse environment. And I have to say, looking back, I appreciated that opportunity to be able to to interact with people from different backgrounds and different races. And I think that was yet another part of my experience that shaped me as an adult and, uh, and shaped me as a leader. 
And to expand on that, you on to Spellman and HBCU in Atlanta. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important uh, that experience was for you and for your classmates? Yeah, for those that don't know what a a historically black college or university is an HBCU. Back in the 1800s, when black people were coming out of slavery, there were very few opportunities for blacks to go to mainstream colleges. And so HBCUs were created to, to develop educational opportunities for blacks. Uh, and Spelman College was Uh, created in 1881 by Rockefeller sisters. And it has been a beacon of tremendous leadership for Black women for 140 years. For me, it was uh, was the only place that I ever wanted to go. Uh, It was a rich history in my family on my mother's side of of going back to my great-grandmother's generation. Uh, Her sister was in the first graduating class of Spelman in 1895. Uh, And so my grandfather has movie reels of me running across Spelman's campus when I was five years old. My father's my father's mother was disappointed because she went to Harvard. And so she was wondering, like, why would I not be interested in going to Harvard? But Spelman was the only place I wanted to be. And as you know, we mentioned earlier, you're the you know executive vice president of a social impact growth and legislative affair um, with the NHL. And, you know, wanted to see how did you find yourself, you know, working for the NHL? Was it something that you always, you know, aspire to do? Well, no, I will say no. <laughs> uh, to, 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 just, to just put it bluntly, I started my career in financial services and worked both in the insurance industry and investment banking for many, many years and came through that industry, retired from J.P. Morgan Chase in 2012 and joined a CEO advisory firm, Teneo, where I led its leadership and, and marketing branding practice. And the NHL ended up being a client of mine. That's how I met Gary Bettman. I did a project for the NHL that was co-led by Heidi and and Brian Jennings uh, and ultimately had an opportunity to interact with Gary. And he talked about the future of the sport and um, a lot of different things happened. And ultimately he invited me to join the league in a position that he created for me. And what an honor that was. And um, that was three and a half years ago. And I have loved working for him and working for the league and, and working on behalf of the clubs. It's been a great pleasure and a lot of fun. What advice would you give yourself looking back a few years ago? Well, I have to tell you, Gary epitomized what I often talk to people about, and and that is the importance of sponsorship. And, you know, people often confuse sponsorship with mentorship. And the, the easy way I describe the differences between sponsorship and mentorship is that mentors tell you and sponsors sell you. And and Gary was the ultimate salesperson for me coming into the league. The credibility that he brought to helping to elevate uh, and accelerate integration into the culture is exactly what leaders need to do when new leaders come into an organization and they may have the competence, but they don't have the credibility. Right. And we often get confused about the intersection of competence and credibility. You can be highly competent, but if you don't have the credibility, 
accountability. Sometimes careers are derailed because of that, particularly when you come in at senior levels. Mm -hmm. And Gary made sure that I was building credibility and that I was seen as credible with owners and presidents. And that really accelerated my ability to do the work that I do now. And he told me it would take six months for me to build that credibility. And I was saying to myself, listen, I spent 30 years in investment banking. It's not going to be that hard. Well, it, 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 it was. And I saw how he navigated me. And, you know, as I look back on that, I would say, had I not had that, I probably wouldn't have the credibility that I think I have now um, across the across the league. So he's been a, a tremendous sponsor. Can you say that part one more time? Because I think it kind yeah. of it went over my head. So I'm sure a lot of listeners probably <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would like please. to go over there. Mentors tell you. Mm -hmm. sponsors sell you. you. Mentors support your career development. I call it your psychosocial development. Sponsors sell you. They have the power, the influence to be able to help navigate you and to sell you in in an organization. For anyone that follows you, and I just watched your recent TED talk and it was amazing. Like, I think I played at least three or four times, but it talked about, you know, how to you know, to uh, um, lead a movement, right? And you're famous on LinkedIn. Like every time I go on LinkedIn, I see a hashtag, uh, movement, not a moment. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's important to to be a movement maker and to also lead with love while you're doing it? After the murder of, of George Floyd, and of course, we we are all happy to see the verdict that, uh, that, that came out yesterday. We still have a tremendous amount of work to do. But after that, that happened uh, in the midst of both the racial and the health pandemic. I, because I, I often distinguish the two. You know, there was a moment where where people were stunned, right, and saw the knee on on his neck. And I think because we were all at home and we were all sort of almost paralyzed from the pandemic, that was even even more stunning for for the world to see. But how do you take a moment like that and to ensure that you turn it into a movement? And and that's really when I started using that hashtag. And and you do that by one, enrolling and engaging people. So that that's number one for me in terms of, of movements and becoming a movement maker, enrolling and engaging. The second part of that is being courageous and brave for this work that we all do uh, to grow our sport, particularly with with underrepresented audiences. And we know that's the future of our sport because the demographics tell us that those are facts. Mm -hmm. So how do we get our fair share of that demographic into our sport so that we can grow and win in the marketplace? It takes courage to be talking about it every single day. Mm -hmm. It takes bravery to speak truth to power. And sometimes it takes, you know, speaking that when you're the only voice. And so part of being a movement maker is being willing to be courageous and brave and to bring voice. And then thirdly, I think part of being a movement maker is understanding that while some people lead with their head and others with their heart, at the end of the day, for us to really look at the humanity of people, we have to understand that empathy is going to be the way that we all win. And that's really leading with love. And and so that's really what I talk about in terms of being a movement maker. In five years, when you're looking back, um, where do you see the NHL compared to the other leagues? Um, and how do you envision getting there? I really believe that we have an opportunity, unlike any other sport, because of our makeup, to be the model of inclusion. And I say that because 97% of our players are white. 
And so the way forward in our sport is going to be through allyship. And that means that we are we have to educate our white players alongside ourselves on why this is important to the values of our sport and the future of our sport. And so number one, five years from now, I expect that we would have educated our entire ecosystem. Gary often says that you can do better when you know better. And so I think that that's a major, major part of our journey. I think secondly, we are going to see the engagement and we're already seeing this. The work that you guys are doing with Till for Change is a great example of that, where we are engaging new voices into the decision-making process within our, our league. That is almost unheard of in the sport of hockey, right? And that's happening across our entire ecosystem at the club level and at the league level. And I think that that is changing already the ways in which people are understanding engagement and enrollment of people that are represented in underrepresented groups. And so the third thing that I see happening is sustainability of models that are going to help take us into the future. Now, we put this framework together, seven centers of excellence around inclusion, leadership, education, employment, marketing, participation, partnerships, and community engagement. And while every market and every club is different, our ability to use that framework and to push our efforts forward in a consistent way is going to make our entire league better all our clubs better. And so I think what we're doing that's different than many other sports leagues, and I spend a lot of time talking to comparable folks in other leagues, is that we are putting a model in place that is going to sustain this work so that indeed it is a movement and not just a moment. I've had conversations recently with three different friends of mine regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion and around hiring practices. And each of them have different upbringings, lifestyles, political leanings, but each of them are educated white men of privilege. Um, and I was surprised that all three of them had said, you, you hire the best candidate, period. Blind hiring, hire the best candidate. But to me, that's status quo. And, you know, I don't know that that will change much. You know, the best candidate to them at that very moment, you know, might not be the best person in a year from now or for the future of the organization. Is there a similarity between hiring blind and color blindness? And what do you think um, will change that mentality so we can have a more equitable and inclusive workplace? First, I think the, 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 the question that you ask is the, is the important question. What does equity look like for you? And what does the best candidate look like for you? And I think that you have five people and you're going to have five different definitions of that. I've had conversations with colleagues, for example, who have said, I want to hire the best candidate, but in this particular part of the organization, there are no people of color, right? They just, Mm -hmm. their belief system, because of what they have seen and what they've been exposed to, would tell them that there aren't any people of color in a particular part of our organization. Let's use as an example, let's say it's sales and marketing. Okay. Now there's a difference between where you source candidates and how and why you attract and why people are attracted to you. Okay. So let me, let me, let me chunk that down. Sourcing candidates has to do with networks and we all have different networks, right? Again, staying with my example of sales and marketing, a white guy in sales and marketing might say that there are no people of color in sales and marketing because they don't have a network of people of color in sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as a black woman, I may have access to a network that they don't know anything about of people that have historically been in sales and marketing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And in fact, that network does exist. Mm -hmm. This is the this is the power of diversity. The power of diversity is that we bring all of our different experiences, our networks, our exposures to bear to make us all bigger and better. Mm -hmm. Right. So the thing is, you can't say that there are no people of color or no women or there are no people that, that in the LGBTQ community, for example, in a particular area, because maybe you don't have access to those networks. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's number one. Number two, in terms of attracting candidates, how and where are you going to attract these candidates? Right. If you're you if you're using the same old systems that have yielded the outcomes that you've been seeing, why do you think you're going to get something new from those same systems? And right. so we have to expose ourselves to new systems to attract candidates. We also have to understand that we have to be attractive to candidates. Right. So it's not a one sided picture. When I joined the National Hockey League, I can't tell you the number of people that reached out to me on LinkedIn. I mean, if, if, if either of you follow me on LinkedIn, I, I must have 5,000 followers on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And so people are constantly coming to me, uh, you know, with that are looking for jobs that that are amazing talent. And in fact, one of the positions that I recently filled came as a result of a young woman of color who, by the way, had both a Princeton and Harvard degree saying that she just wanted to come and work for me. And she would take any position <laughs> just in order to learn and to be under me. Now, she was attracted to the NHL. One, she did love hockey, but two, she was attracted to the NHL because of who she saw there that she felt she could emulate. Mm -hmm. Representation counts. When you see it, you believe you can be it. That's so right. all of these things go into this big pot called sourcing and attracting and, uh, and being attractive that really ha we have to change our mindset around what this idea of best candidate means. Is right. it through our narrow lens or is it through a broader funnel? And when we speak, you know, about the NHL and we speak about you, like many people are happy that you're part of the NHL, like myself. And, you know, that that woman that you mentioned who just wanted to work for you. And it seems like the, the league was waiting for a movement maker like yourself, because like you mentioned, your position was created for you. The position had existed prior to you. Uh, my question is, like, why do you believe this movement chose you? Well, again, I have to I have to really go back to um, to Gary. And I'm, I'm imagining a vision that he had in his in his mind. The league had just come off of its centennial, its 100 years of existence. And, you know, so much of the first 100 years of the league was defined by growth, the number of teams, uh, technology, innovation, uh, the change in the way the game is played. Uh, and I think that as Gary thought about what the next 100 years would be defined by, mm -hmm. I think he really thought that growth was going to have to evolve given the way the world was changing. I think the project that I did for, for the league and the kinds of questions that I raised uh, and, and the observations that I made about the league prompted him to began to think more deeply about what the future needed to hold and the kind of courageous leadership that would be required to move us into the future. And, and obviously that, that level of, of courage and bravery resulted in him hiring me. And um, timing is everything. I, I think that 10 years ago, the, the culture of the league would not have been ready for the kind of change that we're under 
mm-hmm. undertaking, but I think the, the ti- timing is everything. So that's how I would answer that. And, you know, to talk a little bit more about just the, the industry, you know, the sports industry, there aren't a lot of women in the sport industry, especially at director and VP levels. And as, you know, one of the few women who's a woman VP and a woman of color in a, in a male-dominated league, what would you say to other women um, who are listening, who aspire to to positions such as yours? Yeah, focus on on what you can control. And, you know, I can't control that I'm female and I can't control that I'm black, but I can control that I'm competent and I can control that I'm powerful. I can control that I'm strong. And I think if you lead with that and you stay focused on that and don't get caught up in those things we can't control, then we'll be successful. And yeah, they're going to be people along your journey that are, are going to look at you and judge you for all those things that you can't control. And I say that, you know, don't get mad, get even. And you get even by being able to be in positions of power where you can influence, you know, what the next generation looks like. So that's the advice I always give uh, women and I give people of color. Don't get preoccupied and therefore paralyzed by the things you can't control. Focus on what you can control. And much of your job it consists of those courageous conversations. Um, a lot of it is is not always the easiest. You know, it's not always happy and and fun. And it, serious conversations need to be had. But where do you find um, the joy enabled? in order to keep going? Because a lot of those conversations can be and, and repetitiveness, and it, it can you know, bring somebody down. So how do you find that joy in, in the everyday? Yeah, I, I find the joy in, in just seeing the small wins and the, and the, and the small measures of change that I, that I see literally Whitney almost every day. Uh, and, you know, I think often when we undertake culture and change work, we are looking for the big, you know, um, extraordinary moments of movement. And I, and I think real, real revolutionary change always starts with evolutionary change. Um, and we have to be willing to be patient. This is a journey. It's not an event. And as, <laughs> as, mu- as much as I want, like everyone, for us to be able to snap our fingers and for everything to be different, we have to go through the process. And that's another reason why we talk about a movement and not a moment, because part of that language helps to keep people encouraged, right? And it keeps me encouraged. But what has been rewarding for me in the hockey culture is to learn and to experience that the majority of people are really well-intentioned. And Mm -hmm. it's just that they just don't know what to do. Uh, And I think that building that courage and building that bravery in our culture is part of what keeps me motivated. And I see it happening every day. And I think just a small example of the clubs willing to engage with community partners and employees at every level to bring fresh ideas is opening up minds and, and, and minds open means that we're going to have new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it was never my expectation that this would be something that happens overnight. I'm patient because I've seen this process before. I did it and undertook it uh, in a different industry, uh, equally difficult industry, investment banking, working with traders. And so I know what needs to happen in order to affect change. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm patient and, 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 and pretty cool headed at this point. <laughs> 
last uh, week we had a um, a panel event after screening the film Willie um, about Willie O'Ree, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen the film. And a lot of the conversation was around resiliency and how resilient Willie was. And I wanted to ask you about you know you had mentioned the murder of George, George Floyd, and and we're recording this the day after the the verdict was announced. Mm-hmm. But can you shed light on trauma? of um, those experiences for you, your family, friends, colleagues, um, our players, and, and especially our youth players. How do, you, how do you build that resiliency? But also, what do people need to know about the trauma that is, that is affecting your life on a, on a daily basis? Well, I guess I start by saying, I'll start with a story. I had a conversation this morning with a, with a colleague who is white, who said that he woke up and it occurred to him that yesterday, people that look like him and experienced the trial of Chauvin knew that the verdict would be guilty because there's no way that you mm. could have done that and not, and not be guilty. And he said, it, but it occurred to him that that probably people that look like me, a black female, didn't have that same feeling. And I said, no, I said, I feel like I've been holding my breath forever. But for sure, yesterday, I think I was literally holding my breath because it didn't just represent satisfaction for George Floyd's family, which they'll never be satisfied because their loved one is dead. But it represented for me and I think people that look like me, the idea that there is some sense of justice in 2021 and that I don't have to worry about a public lynching, which is how I describe what happened, it not being criminalized, right? That that there would not be a penalty for that. We um, are, are so honored to to be able to um, have you as a leader within our league, and and we do not take the work that you do lightly. So please know that we are are very proud of you and and love looking up to you. Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate all the work that you guys do every day in helping make us better, and we are we are better. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Mo, it's been so awesome to see all of the positive feedback on uh, Twitter and, and Instagram. I know, and even LinkedIn. So thank you guys so much for listening and, and for um, sharing with your friends. Please keep it up and, and reach out to us on, on social and let us know what you think. And if there's any topics or guests that, that we should be talking about or talking with. Um, so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, most definitely. Um, we appreciate your support. We appreciate the messages, the text, the DMs, our job is to, to continue to have these important conversations with you guys. So to every listener out there, we appreciate you. Feel free to, to you know subscribe and share with your colleagues, friends, girlfriend, husbands, wife, brothers, sisters, anyone out there. We appreciate every listen. So thank you and come again. Thank you for listening to Teal for Change on the Sharks Audio Network. All music by Yogi Yend.